we are interested in our history. We're interested in how we evolved the state we are. There's lots of people who have important facts that they can contribute that we'd love to know about. And so um, we'd uh, welcome people into that fellowship for our, you know, our common interests. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. The study of medical history is important, not only to know how far the field has come, but also where it's going. And I would argue that the study of pathology history is even more important. Today, my guests are three pathologists from the History of Pathology Society, Dr. Daniel Curtis, Dr. Julie Lemon, and Dr. Santo Nicosia. We'll talk about how the society started, some of its activities, and why the study of pathology history is important. All right, I hope you enjoy this conversation about the History of Pathology Society. The place I want to start, and I want to kind of go through each of you a little bit of your kind of backstory then. What was your inspiration for becoming a doctor? And then during medical school, uh, kind of what was your first exposure to pathology? And I guess, uh, Dr. Curtis, if we, if we can start with you. Sure. Well, for me, becoming a doctor was aspirational. You know, what was the best thing to become? How could you advance? I was always interested in the biologic sciences. So how could I do more? How could I keep learning? How could I have a positive outcome on society and, and then make sure that my family would be financially secure? So those were my, my base motivations. I went to the University of Michigan and I mm-hmm. uh, had some inspirational people there. Dr. Jerry Abrams got up in the second year. He was the kind of a guy who's, you know, the wind would be waving through his hair, even though there was no wind. You know, he was just like, you know, he had an aura about him. And Dr. French, who was head of the department at that time, they led me to believe uh, uh, that, you know, the answers came from pathology. The answers came from the laboratory and that the clinicians generated a differential based on their history and physical, but pathology is where the answers were. And that's where I wanted to be. Did you have any other uh, specialties at the time that you were interested in, or is it just pathology from then? Oh, from the get-go? Um, yeah. Well, I did two years of general surgery at the University of Kansas when I was waiting for my wife to finish her residency in pediatrics. Um, um, so I went from a year of internship in path, then I got married, where at Kansas, Dr. Scarpelli had just raided that department for all sorts of people to go to Northwestern. So their pathology department wasn't where I wanted to be, but surgery was okay. And I did two years and I had a an interesting time and I almost stayed, but it still wasn't where I wanted to be. You know, real answers, real diagnosis come from anatomic and clinical pathology um, and, uh, or at least the laboratory supports the clinical suspicion. So that was uh, something else that was of interest to me. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, how about you, Dr. Lemon? What, what was your inspiration for becoming the doctor? And then how did you get into pathology? Right. So uh, when I headed to undergrad, uh, like lots of folks who are in pathology now, I was actually interested in forensics. So I did a little bit of forensic anthropology in undergrad. I had a great opportunity to work with Dr. Ted Rathbun, who was an excellent forensic anthropologist at the University of South Carolina. 
Um, I had the, you know, the opportunity to work at the medical examiner's office in Memphis while I was in medical school, do a little bit of anthropology work when I was there with, well, with Dr. Steve Sims, who's another outstanding forensic anthropologist in the U.S. I continued, you know, and, you know, worked through medical school and, you know, during my first two years and then two years of um, clinical work, nothing, nothing changed my mind and, um, changed my course. I was, I was set on, uh, set on pathology. I trained in the, I trained in the army and, uh, the army had, had a year of rotating clinical internship. The time was great. I enjoyed that experience and it allowed me to learn even more, you know, foundational, uh, information that I was sure would help me when I became a forensic pathologist. And then it so happened that uh, during pathology residency, I really liked all the parts of pathology, uh, including the laboratory management stuff. So the Army sent me after training to be a general pathologist at what was essentially a, you know, an Army community hospital. Really enjoyed that. And when I parted parted ways with the Army, there was a, a job available for me in a as a generalist in a community hospital. And so I decided not to pursue any additional subspecialty fellowship training. And here I am, a a general pathologist uh, in a private practice community hospital. Do you ever second guess the fact that you didn't go into forensics? No, I am. I am. I am happy, uh, very happy with my work-life balance and the community that we've settled in. The metal, the tough metal that I had when I started my medical career, waned a little bit when I had children. So uh, I turned into a little bit of a softy. <laughs> Gotcha. Okay. Okay. My turn? Yes. Yes. Please go ahead. Okay. So my name is Santo Nicosia. Uh, I guess we share a similar experience with some change variations on the subject. My curiosity to explore the world of medicine, I guess, was nurtured by the reading of many nonfiction scientific books in my youth, but also through my father's professional healthcare contacts. My first exposure to pathology was actually attending a forensic autopsy of a man killed in, in, during siesta by a betrayed wife. And that was a quite an interesting experience, which stimulated my interest in medicine and then pathology. Okay. So I, I went to medical school at the Catholic University School of Medicine in Rome. Uh, and then I was exposed to two years of pathology during medical school, which fortunately was taught by a very knowledgeable and very inspiring professor by the name of Leonardo Mosca, who also mentored me in producing a thesis that won me one of three prestigious awards. Incidentally, I used the money to buy my first car, a Fiat 500. As a senior medical student, however, I was also interested in, in clinical OBGYN and pathology. I had a sort of dual love, one for pathology and one for obstetrics and gynecology. I did a year of residency in OBGYN but then I realized that I loved even more the discipline of pathology, especially for its research aspects. I went to the University of Pennsylvania under a great mentor by the name of Luigi Mastroianni, chairman of BGN and the director of reproductive biology, a very world famous institution. And it truly created a very strong foundation in reproductive biology to what was then going to be a 30 year old long research on the pathobiology of ovarian cancer. So again, my, my life alternated between research in a BGN 
in gynecological pathology and then in cytopathology, but always in focus on the female reproductive tract. That's all. Okay, and then what was it? You said you, you came from Italy then to Pennsylvania. What, yes, what was I, I went from Italy. Well, it's a complicated story. I met my wife in Rome, Italy. Okay. During my first year of BGN residency, her father had a business in Chicago and in Rome and in Florence and in Milan. So I went for a year in Milan uh, at Michael Reese Hospital for a, a research under the direction of Corrad Piani, who was really the father of renal pathology. And there I also met uh, another great guy by the name of Tony Scomegna, who sort of introduced me to the world, or reintroduced me, I should say, to the world of the UN and UN pathology. So that was my, my, my move from Rome to Chicago and then to Philadelphia University, Pennsylvania. But always we focused on the female reproductive tract biology and the pathology of it. That, that's interesting. All three of you have fairly different uh, stories of how you got into the field. Dr. Lemon, let's go back to you. I, I know you did master's, you did a master's course or coursework, I guess, in museum studies. I did. And, uh, yeah, okay. Can, can you tell me about that? Because that certainly ties into the, the history of pathology society, which we'll talk about later on. Yeah, of course. So as I had always been interested in history generally, and then in my um, residency training, it was at Walter Reed and the AFIP. And so, you know, the sense of history there is obviously very significant. So, so that was all sort of brewing in the background. And I've been out of the Army for a while and uh, here in practice in Middle Tennessee. And my oldest daughter had an assignment, had a school assignment, and she was supposed to go visit a Civil War site. So we went to the Stone River National Battlefield here. It's a Civil War battle site here in Middle Tennessee. And so we went and we did our visit and we went to an adjacent antique store. And in there, there were bins of uh, just full of mini balls, right? So some were unfired and, you know, unused essentially, and others had been deformed by impact. And so my daughter was looking at these and she picked one up and she just had this sparkle in her eye. She was so amazed by like the significance of this object, right? So it was here for her. She was holding it and it had last been touched probably, you know, over 150 years ago and been so impactful in someone's life in the course of this battle. And so that her uh, her enthusiasm was really infectious. And so, you know, as I was sort of pondering, you know, the midpoint of my career and thinking about history and military medicine and uh, the importance of preserving objects associated with our history, I decided that I wanted to do some more studies. And I um, looked around and decided that museum studies was uh, was a really good way to learn that. Uh, so that's how I that's how I came to pursue some some coursework as a as an adult as an adult learner and mm -hmm. looking at museum studies. I, my wife and I we went to not Tennessee but we went to uh, Pennsylvania like Gettysburg and all that stuff for, and looked at some of like Civil War sites and things like that. So I can understand kind of the uh, the weight of of looking at those things that that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dr. Curtis. Let's talk about how you got involved with the Wisconsin State Laboratory of Hygiene. And this is interesting to me because I'm in Wisconsin also. Ah, I'm in, 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 in Milwaukee. Oh, bizarre. Okay. Yeah. So um, Wisconsin State Laboratory of Hygiene is the uh, state's public health laboratory. And so I had a roundabout way of getting there. After I finished uh, uh, residency at Wisconsin, I did a fellowship in chemistry uh, with Dr. Jim Westhart at Wisconsin. And then I got my first real job 
at the University of Wisconsin, I mean, University of Michigan in the, the system. So I was really junior and I was stationed at Wayne County General Hospital, which is a place outside Detroit. And I got a great deal of responsibility because it's an outlier of the university, was an outlier of the University of Michigan system. And then two things happened after a year and a half uh, while I was there. One, the county executive, Wayne County, sold the hospital to a Detroit group and the University of Michigan was going to pull out. Two, Dr. Stanley Inhorn, who is medical director of the Wisconsin State Lab, offered me a position running the School of Cytology and the Cytology Laboratory for both the State Laboratory and for the University of Wisconsin Hospital. It looked like a good move, had more responsibility. The situation at Michigan uh, was, you know, looking funny. And so, uh, and I had some uh, interest in uh, cytology. I was uh, taught by a senior cytotechnologist, Miss Norma Arbold, who had studied with uh, Dr. Papa Nicolaou. She, in 1947, had gone to his laboratory and oh, wow. uh, learned the basics. And she came back and taught generations of residents and cytotechs. Uh, so, uh, and she was an old school mind type with the pencil and the bun and the hair. And she had a ruler that she would wrap you on the fingers if you weren't doing the right thing. And so I was uh, taught by her. And, and uh, aside from the chemistry that I got, which uh, was useful at the state laboratory, um, there was the cytology. And so with a general uh, APCP background, um, Dr. Inhorn thought I'd be a good fit. And later on, I also did surge path at U Hospital. And so it just fell into it. Uh, was I, you know, I was doing all my pathology specialties, uh, kind of like uh, uh, being a, a, a multi-use player uh, on a baseball team. And, uh, and to some degree, I was also a public health official. Okay. I see. Are you still involved with the, with the, uh, I have uh, blessedly retired as of uh, January the 5th of uh, last year. Oh, I'm, I'm Professor Emeritus right now and uh, Emeritus uh, Medical Director of the State Public Health Laboratory. Got it. Okay. Okay. Now I want to get into like where the interest in medical history and pathology history came from. And I want to start with uh, Dr. Nicosia because uh, this just occurred to me growing up in Rome among all of that history, did that have anything to do with you kind of having an interest in history then and then that transferring into medical history? Absolutely. I grew up in Sicily and Rome. Okay. In both, both part, part of Italy, they have a tremendous long history in medicine and other fields, uh, starting with the Arabs, uh, Greek, starting the Greek, the Romans, the Latins, the Arabs, the the, the the Normans, the French, and so on. So a lot, a lot of history, a uh, lot of antiquities, a lot of ruins. And so that stimulated my interest in general history. But then during medical school, my interest picked and moved toward the medical history, history of medicine in general. And the reason is that uh, I always thought, more so now, that the history of pathology gave me a spirit of inquiry into the origin and study of uh, ailments by looking at the historic evolution of medicine and pathology. And also the occasion, the possibility by reading and knowing and talking to people to learn about the contribution of, of minds who dedicate their lives to explore 
what uh, was defined as the dark continent of disease, neuropathology. And uh, I've read in the past 10, 15 years, three beautiful books, which really reinforce ranges in histopathology. One on the history of surgical pathology by Dr. Warren Rosai, one on the history of neuropathology by, uh, by David Lewis, I should say, and cytopathology by uh, Mathilde Boom. And uh, so it's too reading and too interest uh, from, from, I would say, my late teens, this teaching, this histopathology became uh, and developed over the years. Now, regarding the histopathology society, how did they get in? Well, that's, that's never know how the world will turn. Well, well, I, when I came to Tampa, from, I moved from Pennsylvania to the University of South Florida in Tampa. I met the chief of pathology at the local VA hospital. His name was Henry Azar. And I soon realized that besides being a great pathologist, which I went to training at a previous Columbia University, he was a truly a true scholar. And Henry offered me in the late 90s the opportunity to get involved in a new society, which was then called the History of Pathology Society. Uh, and this was launched together with other prominent pathologists of the time. I did accept the challenge, and my life, I should say, has been enriched very much ever since. It, and this experience has allowed me to work and know some of the best and most interesting professionals in the field. Okay, I, li- I like that. That's good. Uh, Dr. Lemon, now, your interest in medical history and pathology history, did this this must have come from your studying, uh, your museum studies work, right? Well, so it, it, it predated it a little bit. Um, okay. As a, uh, as, a, as a resident, I was, wrote, one of our forensics rotations was uh, in Virginia. And so this is about the time that Marcella Fierro, who was the chief medical examiner for the Commonwealth of Virginia, she was uh, preparing to retire. And there were several interviews with her. And this quote from her really, really stuck for me. So uh, the interviewer asked her, how her career had evolved. And her answer was, the more I learn, the more fun it is. So that's really profound, right? The more you understand about your job, the more interesting it is. So that yeah. that certainly applies to, you know, the expertise of a subspecialist academic pathologist, you know, in, you know, subspecialties and molecular and heme and all of those groundbreaking scientific discoveries that happen in pathology laboratories but I think it's also true that the more we understand about where we came from, sort of like the bigger context you understand, and that makes understanding the work we do also uh, a lot more rewarding and interesting. So, so that's how I—that's how my biggest interest in the history of medicine started. Dr. Curtis, how about you? Well, I've always loved history, especially you know even when I was little of uh, the Greeks. I was uh, in grade school. I was, uh, people were laughing because I walked around with a copy of Euripides trying to understand what was there. I've always been fascinated by the twists and turns of how we got where we are, by the people and events that sent history uh, careening to where we are today. And uh, like medical history is really especially interesting. As Dr. Uh, Nicosia said, you know, it goes back to primitive healers, the Egyptians, Hippocrates, Galen, and the Arab sophists. It, it wasn't until the, like the 16th century that uh, uh, Versalius challenged Galen and um, with the error, his errors in anatomy. And then not, uh, it was remarkable to me, it wasn't until the late 1700s that Morgagni 
who wrote this book, The Seats of Causes and of Disease, that tied anatomic pathology to disease. So it's very, very recent. So in my opinion, that was the start of like modern evidence-based medicine. There are tremendous stories of heroism, brilliance, and skullduggery as great as any uh, work of fiction. And, you know, you have stubborn, recalcitrant professors who are willing to accept new ideas and the people who superseded them. Like in Rosai's book, how resistant pathologists really were mm-hmm. going from their academic stance uh, to doing um, the whim of surgeons, right? The guiding the the surgeon's hand is the title of uh, one of Rosai's books. And, and so most people, including people at the University of Wisconsin, had to be drug kicking and screaming uh, into uh, doing frozen sections and, and biopsy work. They wanted to stay in their laboratories, writing papers and, and doing autopsies. So there's lots of stuff. I mean, like Rene Lenec, who the, the French physician who was, you know, a truly good man who developed a stethoscope, described myconodular cirrhosis, evolved a method of physical exam that we still use, and then uh, the tales of uh, anesthesia in um, uh, America that almost everyone early anesthesia effort touched uh, ended up uh, depressed, dying, or or um, uh, one committed suicide. But I can tell you that story in, over a couple of minutes if you want. Oh, sure. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Okay, so there's a great series that the teaching course has, the history of medicine through biography, and they tell you about Horace Wells who was a dentist who found nitrous oxide after a party. And he found out when he wrapped his knee on a a chair that it didn't hurt. And so he tried to use it on uh, his patients and and it worked. It provided pain relief. And he demonstrated it at Harvard, at at Mass General. And when he pulled a tooth from a student, the student in the middle of the operating room started screaming. And... um, after application of nitrous, and all the medical students that were around that started yelling, humbug. Well, it seems actually after the student didn't feel any pain, he just, you know, yelled when the tooth was removed. And so Horace Wells went out and got depressed. His partner, William Morton, tried ether, and his uh, attempt also at Mass General worked that, I think it was Dr. Stewart, someone, Uh, did a uh, dissection of a salivary gland tumor while a patient was under ether and experienced no problem. And he replied to the audience, gentlemen, this is no humbug. (laughs) Well, William Morton had gotten ether from a chemist, evidently Charles Jackson, and he spent the rest of his life fighting Jackson about the rights to using ether that he called lethe. And so he ended up... uh, uh, having a stroke, and uh, Morton did, and, and um, just battling to the end. Horace Wells essentially went insane, uh, became addicted to chloroform, and was arrested after he threw acid on a couple of uh, streetwalkers and then committed suicide. So it's just a, uh, a a fascinating and somewhat depressing history. But there's lots of stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's for sure. Actually, now, now that you now that you've told that, that, that does sound like, I feel like I've heard that before. That's a famous, you know, the major yeah. contribution of American medicine uh, to the world was really anesthesia. And it's so, it's so messed up. Yeah, that, that's for sure. All right. So here's, here's a bit of a philosophical question then. 
a lot of people study medical history and, and particularly surgery, but why is it, and I guess this is for all of you, why, why is it important to study pathology history in particular? For me, it's just what I said above. It's where the answers are. Where uh-huh. do you discover the truth? And I consider, you know, any laboratory science fertile ground for that diagnostic uh, uh, medicine. So what do you really try to find during the study of history is the truth. I think the experience repeats themselves, and we can always learn in some ways from the past. Yes. Okay. And you look at the struggles of people like Dr. Papanicolaou, you know, how he made uh, many turns and took long, a uh, long time to get to where he eventually saved millions of lives. But it was not a straightforward path. No. It, could we do it better? Let's turn then to the History of Pathology Society, which all, all three of you are kind of involved in the, I guess, the, the leadership of the society. Um, but I want to get a little bit, if we could, a little bit of the history of it. Now, I know this was founded in in the mid-90s. I believe it was, was it 94 or 96, something like Nin- that? 96. 96. Okay. Uh, can, can we kind of briefly go through the history of the society and and then kind of what it does? Can I, can I jump in first and do a little bit, do a uh, little overview of the history of USCAP more generally? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a good idea. Yes. Oh, and let me defer to my other colleagues here who have been members of, I say USCAP, do you guys prefer USCAP or tell me your preferred uh, pronunciation of the organization? USCAP is fine. I know it's much debated. Yeah, USCAP uh, is what I usually use. Okay. I've always wondered about that myself, actually. Okay. I, I think that there was a, I think there was like a poll on Twitter a couple of, like mm-hmm. a month or so ago. Yeah. <laughs> and, I'm, I'm probably militantly apathetic about that whole thing. Fair enough. All right. Well, I'm going to go with you, Captain, because that's what naturally rolls off my tongue. Okay. Okay. Right. So uh, no surprise that I'm going to mention here that we can't really talk about the history of medicine in the United States without bringing medical museums into the discussion, right? So USCAP was initially founded as an organization uh, called the International Association of Medical Museums, um, because back in the early 1900s, medical education was really reliant on the quality of each medical school's anatomic collections, their medical museum, if you will. So um, in the early 1900s, some luminary pathologists, we certainly recognize their names now, Maud Abbott, James Carroll, and William McCallum, so sort of representing McGill, the U.S. military medicine, and Hopkins, respectively, all met together at the Army Medical Museum in D.C., and they had this organizing committee, and they were going to establish this new organization called the International Association of Medical Museums. And so their their goal was to bring uh, pathologists and curators of medical museums together to share information and to improve their improve their work. So uh, the organization that would become USCAP uh, was first uh, first established in 1906, and James Carroll, who was a uh, military pathologist, was the first uh, was the first president of the organization. And then uh, it grew uh, in 1952. The uh, the old bulletin, the IAMM bulletin, was replaced with the new journal called Laboratory Investigation. 
And then uh, in 1955, another name change called the International Academy of Pathology uh, to really emphasize the goal as a learned society for all for the advancement of all sciences. And then in 1969, uh, again, another international uh, expansion. And so that puts us up to, to near modern times and maybe a good time to talk about um, how the history of pathology society came out of that. So the History of Pathology Society was kind of tied in with USCAP from, from the very beginning. It is. It's, it's a, it is a, a, compa- a companion society of, of USCAP, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, all right, let's, let's get into the, the history then of the History of Pathology Society. And Dr. Nicosia, I'm sure, has a better handle on it than any of us. He's <laughs> well, a long-standing okay. secretary of, of the society. And age, age, age of your beauty, I guess. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we defer yeah. to your expertise. <laughs> I, haven't, yeah, I haven't got any uh, beauty to offer you, so. So, Please, go ahead. Forward. So, the history goes back to, to Dr. Eliazar. Eliazar, I believe, if I recall correctly, in 1994, around it, met with Dr. Nezelov from France, and together they sketched the concept of the History of Pathology Society, 1994. Then in 1996 or so, at the Washington Hilton, there was a meeting of several individuals, including uh, Flora Bermulek, uh, Dr. Dr. Lombard-Bosch, Dr. Donald Westking, and Dr. Azar and others, where the uh, they found ways to fund a, a dinner and also agreed on the, on the uh, launching society, select the treasurer, which was Anne-Marie Nelson. And at that time, there were 24 participants in 1996. In 1997, March 2nd, at the USCAP meeting, the bylaws were approved and the society was officially launched with 150 registrants for over 20 countries, I believe. So that's a nutshell that is the history. The, the official program began, so the official scientific program began in 1997 in Orlando, Florida. And at that time, I gave a speech on Morgani and the beginning of the anatomic pathology. It was very, very well attended. I think there were over 100, 150 people. Dr. Rosai was sitting, I remember, in the first, on the first row and was looking at me with attention. And this, after the meeting, he sent me a, a proof, uh, uh, the first draft, or the last draft of his book, Guiding the, the Hands of the Surgeon of the Surgeons, uh, History of Surgical Pathology to Review and to make some comments. And I was very, very, very proud of that he, he taught on me, of course. So in that show, that society, since then, we have had 25 scientific meetings until uh, this year, uh, run by Dr. Marie-Christine Aubrey. And kind of what was the kind of initial, I guess, goal of the society? I mean, was it preservation of pathology history or study of it? Or well, the, the, well, maybe it was that to form a non nonprofit organization that fostered will foster the history of pathology, fostered interest in research yeah. in the history of pathology and allied sciences. So uh, yes, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to uh, agree with you. It's just like. It's interest. It's it's fascination with how we got to where we are, and uh, so much effort put out by so many people who have done so many amazing things. Yeah, yeah a lot of people. Yeah, as curiosity, that's sort of a little bit on the laughing side. 
when Nato Nezilov met with Dr. Azar in, in, in Paris, they thought of a name, uh, they described the Eastern Society as a society of distinguished and extinguished pathologists <laughs> due to the age of the, nice. the average age of the <laughs> Oh, we've had some, yeah, amazing folks uh, like Rosai and and like Leopold Koss and his members of the society. Yeah, yeah, many. Okay. And, then, and then Dan, you know, also this, the, this fact that the logo of the society, which you redid in a very nice way, was designed by one of the most acclaimed painters of Florida, Miss Anne Drury. And this was acknowledging the first newsletter of the history of Catholic society. And the, the logo was the initial trial phase and then it was approved after the positive reaction of the members of the society. And he initially, he listed the list of draft, listed the names of Gallery, Morgani, Bichat, Wirchhoff, Wirchhoff, and Welch. But, but then it was modified to restrict uh, three people. I believe it was Gallen, Morgani, and Lenek. So we do have a website that the... Uh hps.wisc.edu. Yes. And mm-hmm. so, uh, I'll, I'll include a link to that in the show notes for sure. Yeah, I will, I will give it to you. There's, a, there's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of good information on, on that site. Yeah, we keep trying um, to keep it up. <laughs> yeah, I imagine that's a, that's a uh, large task. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guests, Dr. Daniel Curtis, Dr. Julie Lemon, and Dr. Santo Nicosia. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now back to our conversation about the history of pathology society on the People of Pathology podcast. So, so the society has a companion meeting at USCAP every year. Uh, and what I, I know there's, I was looking kind of through some of the archives of the, of the meetings from the past, and there's, seems like there's a different theme uh, every year. How does, how does that theme get, uh, get how, like who picks the theme? How does that get chosen? The president, Dan, not that hurt is this year. Okay. Yeah. So Dr. Aubrey uh, did the last year and, and um, it was an excellent uh, uh, presentation or a set of presentations on women in pathology. Next year, uh, it's going to be on a um, uh, history of uh, cytology. We have a uh, gentleman from Greece who's going to do uh, the history of Dr. Papanikolaou. I'm going to do something on uh, Hashime Moriyama, who's the, the artist of uh, Dr. Papanikolaou. Ritu Nayar from Northwestern is going to do a session on the history of the Bethesda system for reporting uh, uh, gynecologic cytopathology. And then with the help of Dr. Jim Wright, uh, we're going to have a a junior person present a a session on uh, why cytopathology took so long to thrive, which is a uh, a combination of uh, technology and uh, recalcitrance, and so that ought to be interesting. Dr. Jim Wright is uh, from uh, University of Calgary and is a wonderful historian, and he has uh-huh. a lot of a bevy of articles that uh, uh, you know uh, talk to the whole field. And so he's going to uh, 
Uh, we've got a, a, a junior person from Loyola uh, who is going to uh, present. I'll find her name in a second. Uh, and then also this year, we're going to try to uh, offer our first award, the Dr. Azar Award, for a platform session uh, that we're going to um, put out a call along with the rest of the USCAP abstracts for a, re a trainee, resident, or fellow to offer something uh, about the history of pathology, and we'll choose the best article and and give that the award, or the best abstract, and give that the award. Uh, you mean so something like like a research project in in the history of pathology? Yep. Yes. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, it'll be uh, uh, Dr. Nicosia. Actually, it's actually to his credit that we came up with this, I believe. And so, uh, maybe you want to talk to it. Well, you already said everything that was named after Dr. Nizar. He was a true scholar. Dr. Azar, as I mentioned to some of my friends, when he retired from pathology, from the, the, the being chief of VA pathology in Tampa, he decided to undertake, undergo a, a, a study. He gained a PhD in medical history at the uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And I'm told he was the oldest PhD graduate at the age of 71 plus in that university. And this thesis was also an, an, an subject of medical history having to do with the contribution of uh, Arab, uh, Arab med medical doctors to pathology. So you're going to need a couple of minutes to do the lead into this award. Probably not. Two or three minutes. Yeah, that's yeah. all. Two minutes. Yeah. We need a picture of him and whatnot. So yeah. excellent. Okay. Interesting. All right. Uh, Dr. Lemon, so going back to what you were saying about kind of the origin of USCAP and how it was more about uh, medical museums, I, the thing I want to get to get into is it seems like there's, uh, as far as historical pathology specimen collections, they, they seem to be more rare these days. They're not being preserved uh, for whatever reason. Can we talk about like, what is that reason? Why, why aren't these uh, collections, why, why don't they still exist? Absolutely. We can talk about that. I'm going to tell you a sort of meandering story, which also answers the how did I come to the history of pathology society? I'm, okay. the, I'm the most recent addition to this to this uh, this cadre here. And uh, it's a really uh, interesting story about coincidences. Love those. Right. How yeah. All of those crazy coincidences in life where you just bump into people. Mm -hmm. OK, go ahead. So on a weekend trip. Uh, up to uh, fulfill a requirement for the museum studies program. And I went on a visit to the medical library on the Harvard Med campus to see the remains uh, of the Warren Anatomical Collection. So the Warren Anatomical Collection is the medical museum that's been associated with Harvard since, basically since its inception. And there are portions of it still on display there in the library on campus. While I was there, I uh, was meeting with a curator whose name is Dominic Hall, and he was telling me about this other pathologist who was also interested in medical museums and that she was working, putting together a presentation about medical museums for a society. And so he contacted me with this pathologist and I was absolutely shocked to hear that it was Dr. Susan Lester because I, you know, was not. Oh, wow. Right. I was not terribly long out of training and Dr. Lester, you know, taught me how to gross in her book. And so, right. <laughs> so she has quite the career as a, also as a, history. She's a, she's a big fan of uh, the history of medicine as well. And so she graciously invited me to collaborate with her and Dominic and um, 
Rick Frazier, who's at McGill, and uh, Jim Wright, again, another another mention for Dr. Wright and his uh, history skills. So the, the group of us collaborated and uh, looked into researching what the known existing medical museums were, right? So which what, what were all the medical museums that had ever existed? And this was built um, off of work that Dominic had done uh, when he was when he was getting his credentials, um, and it was built predominantly off of the list uh, in the Flexner Report. So the Flexner Report cool. is was published in 1910 by Abraham Flexner. He was funded by the Carnegie Foundation to travel around the United States uh, and see what the state of medical education was in the U.S. Uh-huh. with an ultimate goal to sort of standardize it and raise the quality, if you will. So from primarily from, from his book, uh, there were approximately 65 medical museums that we identified. We sort of we split up the list and we called around and tried to track down all of them. Of all of those that were present then in the early 1900s, only about 10 exist now. Oh, Less wow. Than five. Yeah, right. So a big, big decrease. Less than five still have any significant use, you know, modern use. The, um, the modern uses sort of break into three categories. Uh, some people use them for teaching. Obviously, the warren is heavily used for teaching the teaching uh, medical students. They are used sometimes for research applications, including modern applications. So some molecular testing of specimens. A few also do some community events and uh, bring out select specimens for art inspiration. So they gather artists and have an artist evening. Those are those are kind of the three most common uses. So the most famous ones that are still uh, still available and still use their collection are, of course, the Warren Collection, which is at Harvard, the Army Medical Museum, um, which many of us knew as the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology Museum, and now has right. yet, uh, another name is the National Museum of Health and Medicine. And then the Mudra Museum in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and then Old Red, which is the medical museum down at UT Medical Branch in Galveston. So that is that, that's the story of how many medical museums there used to be, and there are a few now. And I can also talk a little bit about why they were important and how they when why their significance decreased. So if we think back through the history of history of medicine, and it's been mentioned a few times as we've talked tonight. So um, all the way back to Hippocrates and Galen, up through Vesalius and Virchow, right? Everything is is gross. Everything is at the 1x level, external, some dissection. And it's, you know, the microscope is a relatively new, new advancement, right? So in the early days of medical education in the United States, the most important things for medical teaching were anatomic specimen collections. Remember, there wasn't really photography to share images. You know, there there was no way to share. So each medical school had to have its own collection to Mm -hmm. be a good teaching collection for their students. Well, as technology progressed, and then we have the ability to take photos, and then we have the ability to share photos, you know, originally in lantern, you know, lantern forms, and then, then in photography, and then we have the ability to share them more quickly the the need to have your own collection decreased. Well, at the same time as that was happening, the rise of microscopic anatomy was was emerging, right? So here comes histology. Uh, so that further decreased the need to have such a big collection of anatomic specimens. And now we're even into you know, another layer of increasing our molecular knowledge, even, you know, 
beyond histology. So all of those things combined to decrease the need for large anatomic collections. And then if you want me to be a little bit cynical, I will also point out that medical museums and large anatomic collections take up a lot of real estate, right? Yeah. <laughs> like they're, they're not easy to store. They're not easy to catalog, take up a lot of, a lot of real estate. And that real estate is um, needed by medical schools to do other things, to house other departments, to house deans and assistants and um, to, for, for other, you know, for other, for other needs. And so as the need for medical museums decreased and the needs of other departments increased, it was sort of a perfect storm that they diminished so significantly. Having done administration also, the cost of keeping those things up, making sure that the fluids are in there, making sure there are trained individuals who know how to make specimens, you know, dissection to the jar or or to the mounting medium and or to plasticize specimens to keep them I mean, uh, that also is a dying art and it takes away from the bottom line, right? Absolutely. A research lab generates money if it's a good research laboratory. A space housing a museum doesn't generate anything. Exactly. And and, and sort of ironically, uh, as those pathologists and the curators that I was talking about that, you know, were working on that project together, the data, as we talked and were investigating, there's this real interest and a real need in sort of developing another, uh, a collaboration, if you will, of people who are still in that space, because as you point out, that skill set is decreasing. Uh, So for people who do still have those collections, there's a need to share resources and share knowledge before it's all gone, which sort of brings us back to (laughs) the International Association of Medical Museums, you know, which was literally founded to, for that exact reason, for medical curators to share their information. So we've, we've almost come full circle now. Yeah, I got to do, uh, when I was a medical student, a rotation in uh, University of West Indies in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And they still have a complete, uh, at least in the late 70s, still had a complete medical museum out there because that was the teaching method available. Uh, you know, the, the electronics and whatnot weren't... Uh, 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 the best, and so that they had plenty of amazing things uh, in jars, yeah. uh, so long as that they could have formalin. Yeah. But in the past, we had a session once on um, anatomic waxes. Yeah, uh, I was recommending that. Yeah, yeah, because that's that's for you. I mean, uh, uh, Italian educators engage artists to create mm-hmm. anatomic wax models of disorders, like like the right. figures in Madame Tussauds. And they're amazing things in Padua, but um, you've seen them actually, Santa. Yeah, if, if I can jump into that, uh, two comments, one comment and then another one. The first comment, I wonder, besides all the very important reasons, mostly based on monetary issues, that the museums are, are losing grounds somewhat, uh, I wonder if there is also that another reason is the, the decrease in number and frequency of autopsy. For many reasons, such as uh, the cost of then the non-reimbursed cost of autopsy for the hospitals, uh, the issue of uh, malpractice and so on, there has been a significant decrease in number of autopsy. Therefore, also a significant decrease in source of material for museum. I think maybe I'm wrong, but that's my thought. I think that's definitely uh, it's certainly a modern contributor, you know, to the fact that we're not accumulating specimens now. 
the other really important consideration that we have now that is not part of our history, but we have to consider is the agency of the individuals who are represented in those collections. You know, so now we have very strict guiding rules about what can be retained after an autopsy. Um, and those rules were not, were not in place, Absolutely. you know, in the early days of the United States, sure. you know, a so, patient in need of healing presented themselves to a physician. Um, and they certainly, it is unlikely that they were considering that their, their illness could be on display for years in advance. Yeah. I mean, so, the same thing with pictures. My wife did developmental disabilities and she had, um, you know, pictures of all sorts of children with uh, different disorders, genetic, uh, uh, of other ideologies. You can't do that now. Right. Mm, that so makes sense. We, so we may go back to anatomical waxes, as Dr. Curtis yes. mentioned. Uh, in the regard, I, I, my, my own experience, I was very lucky to visit two or three fantastic museums in Italy. One in, the, uh, in Bologna, the Poggi, the Catani Museum of, of Anatomy and Pathological Space, fantastic. And the public was there and they, they pay, they buy a ticket. So they make some money. I don't know how much, but they make some money. And the other one is the, the Las Papal Institute in Florence and the University of Florence Museum of Pathological Anatomy in Florence, uh, in which Gabriela Nessi, past president of the society, is very much involved. These museums, I, I, if I'm correct, also offer online experience. So going back to the possibility of digitalization of specimens, I think that a virtual museum of pathological specimen may have historical value. It may be a source of teaching materials to students, undergraduate and postgraduate in that regard. Yeah, those uh, anatomic waxes are uh, consummate works of art. I mean, they are yeah. beautiful. Yeah. And you can just do a Google search on anatomic waxes and it'll show up. Yeah. The specimens that you have are a reflection of teaching methods available. Before, you know, early on, actual specimens would deteriorate. Uh, so they had to be looked at while fresh or in the cold. And then you got fixation and then you had your anatomic waxes. So they were those things, the the the, the Kodachromes of their day. And now uh, <laughs> even Kodachromes are, are out, right? Because you just yeah. use digital images. And but, go but, ahead, please. If you go to Florence, you see congenital abnormalities, you see infections, you see skin disorders, cardiovascular neoplasm, tumors, ovarian tumors, infarctions, and so on. It's all a, a, a huge series of anatomical wax representing very, fairly, not always, very faithfully, the true anatomical conditions. This reminds me, I, it, was, it was last year sometime, I spoke with a pathologist in England, actually, and she was talking about they were in the process of because their their pathology collection was kind of in danger of being th destroyed, thrown away, and they were in the process of three D scanning all of their specimens so that they could three D print them on demand as as needed. Is this? Do you think this is a viable option to preserve some of this history? Well, I mean, if you create files for three D printing, you know, storage is easy. You could do something like that, but. Really high quality photographs um, have taken over everything. Uh, the cost yeah. of maintaining specimens is is progressively prohibited, even for uh, glass slides. We I used to in the 1990s. Uh, I ran the full 16 week course 
of uh, general pathology. And we used to have, you know, 149 boxes of slides, uh, plus plenty of replacements for breakage, uh, have to plead with the Department of uh, uh, Pathology and Anatomy to get replacement slides when we needed them, or heaven forfend news slides. Um, and that was murder. Now, uh, then we went to whole slide imaging, and we don't keep those slides anymore. Students don't have microscopes anymore. Um, it's a reflection mm. of teaching methods available. So digitization of those historic specimens would preserve many things that are important about them, but definitely some uh, some important opportunities would be lost, right? Because yeah. one of the previous speakers at uh, one of the History of Pathology Society meetings, we had the pleasure of hearing Dr. Taubenberger, Dr. Jeffrey Taubenberger, yes. um, speak about his work in sequencing the genome of the 1918 flu. And so oh, yes. that you know, that wouldn't be possible uh, from a digital recreation, of course. Absolutely. I mean, even, you know, radiologists can now uh, image lesions in situ, and you could derive 3D printing files from that. But, of course, the genetic information would be long gone. Mm-hmm. Okay. It, you know, uh, Dr. Lemon, you, you mentioned earlier the, the former AFIP, and I know there's a greater than probably a hundred year collection of, you know, slides there. Is that, and I, that, you know, you mentioned just now that the 1918 uh, influenza, is that collection, like how important is that collection to, to preserve? It's, it's hugely important. I'm so glad that it still exists in the form mm-hmm. of the joint pathology center. So it is still there. Um, a colleague, uh, colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Joel Moncor is the director of the Joint Pathology Center, and they do lots of lots of great work um, preserving what they do have and working through the administrative requirements of uh, giving access to researchers who who need and want to access those specimens. So it's you know it's a federal organization which makes it you know, there are, there are some rules. <laughs> And administration that need to be that need to be worked through, but but the collection the collection is still is still there. Okay, and as I understand it, this is a kind of a long process of going through and kind of cataloging what is there, right? Yes. Uh, so the AFIP came with you know a nice uh, you know or, or an organized an organized collection, but they are uh, they are definitely continuing to to organize it and you know in an attempt to make it more accessible. It's supposed to be there for perpetuity. Yeah. Yes, I hope I hope it is. <laughs> and me too. The and you know everyone uh, when I was a resident used to contribute to the uh, AFIP specimens. That radiologists, ENT folks used to have to, to to pass the residency. They had to submit cases. Yes. Um, radiology, tissue, and uh, uh, if it was an unknown, the AFIP would work it up have seminars, uh, send answers back. And of course, that all ended, uh, I guess it was within um, Bush Jr.'s reduction in force. Uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. The uh, base realignment and closure of uh, in 2005 is when it, is when it started, started winding down. And so um, that represents a loss, but, you know, um, there, uh, the modern teaching methods still offer other opportunities. Um, including uh, access to excellent images 
which uh, are progressively better because uh, the digital realm makes them finer and finer. In fact, you know, I often get asked, well, what do you do with all these tons of Kodachromes uh, living in a senior pathologist's office as they retired? And frankly, if you really study those, they're not as good as modern digital images. When I retired, I threw 10,000 slides away. Unless they are, you know, incredibly unique specimens um, uh, and of very odd disorders, uh, a a modern digital camera will do a better job. Yep. And so um, we need to uh, keep evolving to teach better. We we do do not teach uh, always good photographic skills to our residents. Mm. That will be important. Yeah, it seems like that's becoming more and more important as time goes on. Okay, now I I hope that throughout this conversation, we've kind of sparked everyone's interest in the history of pathology and how important it is. So for people that are interested in becoming members of the society, well, first of all, who can become a a member? Is it just for pathologists or can others join as well? The society is open to any person of any nationality as by by law specified with a degree in medicine, doctor of medicine, or a similar doctor or the international equivalent, including veterinary medicine, dentistry, or allied biological science. So anybody in that in those field can join. And also training is very important, can also join, provided they're demonstrating some interest in, in the history of pathology society, in the history of pathology in general. So it's open to a lot of people in the health field, health-related field. Okay. Okay. And then, uh, as as a part of membership, like what I, I guess, what are the what are the benefits or the, the society, as we mentioned, organize annual presentation at the scientific uh, meeting during USCAP in companion meeting. Uh, many, many twenty five presentation of the last twenty five years from by excellent pathologists and, and other health related individuals. Uh, they discuss the history of pathology, scientific and social aspects of medicine and pathology. Currently, society uh, also has the visibility through the website organized with authorities very nicely, in face, through, through Facebook and Twitter also. And beginning, as already indicated by Dr. Curtis, beginning next year, the society will offer to pathology trainees the Henry Hazard Award for Excellence in the Study of History of Pathology. So these are some of the most important benefits that joining society for a mere $25 annual fee or $300 for lifetime membership can they can get. It's like other societies, uh, a small family of people with similar passions that we are interested in our history. We're interested in how we evolved the state we are. There's lots of people who have important facts that they can contribute that we'd love to know about. And so um, we'd uh, welcome people into that fellowship for our, you know, our common interests. Last question. So we, we talked a little bit earlier about the 1918 flu pandemic. And I wonder now, a hundred years from now, say, or, or about that time, because the 1918 flu was such a momentous uh event and now looking back now at the covid pandemic from 100 years in the in the future how how important is that going to be in the history of pathology looking back uh, i've got to say it's going to be uh 
hugely important for, and what we need to do is we need to gather our stories now because pathologists contributed during this pandemic in so many different ways, both in traditional laboratory roles, as well as, you know, non-traditional roles that pathologists usually don't don't participate in. Um, so we, we are literally writing our history now. So I would encourage anyone to get your thoughts down on paper now before they, before they fade even more from a, I could give a, uh, give a mention here to John Barry's book, uh, the great influenza. Mm-hmm. We know a ton about how pathologists participated in, in the investigation of the 1918 flu, both, uh, the pathologist at Hopkins and the pathologist at Rockefeller Institute and the military pathologist, uh, you know, in search of that causative organism and, and how they figure that out. His book is a really great review of uh, both the history, the general history of medicine in the U.S., as well as the investigations and contributions of the pathologist in that last pandemic. So I would I would urge everyone to to both read that book and then uh, reflect about your own contributions. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we got to get those, we got to collect those. We, it's important to, as important as it is to learn from past history, we also need to be very cognizant of collecting our current history so that future generations can learn from what we experienced. Yeah. You well, know, one of, one of my last services at the state laboratory was helping put together this uh, COVID laboratory for the University of Wisconsin. We had to do 48,000 uh, plus a week and playing whack-a-mole trying to get uh, reagents, machines, uh, people uh, to do that. And that was a similar experience across the country. You know, nature asserted its upper hand uh, after a lot of people thought that widespread and infectious disease was something in the back mirror, right? Although there were uh, certain prophets, like uh, there was a novel by David Quammen, Spillover, which talked about all the dangers out there and emergent uh, diseases. Um, not a, Obviously, not enough attention was paid to that um, because we could have been better prepared than we were. I also think that within the pathology regarding coronavirus, there are two facts come to my mind. One, that... Uh, a lot of work was done at the University of Washington within the Department of Pathology regarding statistics of infections or COVID infection and also development of the screening test. Second, I think that uh, uh, the, the SARS-CoV-2 infection uh, has created challenges to pathology laboratories regarding many, many issues such as strategy to manage contamination upon exposure to biological samples. We can, we can learn from that. We should learn now and learn for the future. And as you mentioned in that regard, I think the society has been somewhat involved in a similar issue with a couple of lectures during, uh, run during, during the uh, companion meeting run by Susan Liston. One was mentioned already, the contribution of Jeffrey Tautenberger, who discussed how understanding a scourge of the 1918 influence virus informs the future. And the other one by Florence Gabilanese discussing European historical collections and their role in biomedical research. So the pathology society can still contribute and the pathology laboratory can still contribute to understanding and management of this, this very dramatic pandemics, epidemics and so on, I think. 
Oh, and there's an, something else I want to mention. There's Dr. Charles Bryan, who was, uh, um, he was at University of North Carolina. He's retired. Um, he's an infectious disease specialist. And he's got a forthcoming chapter in uh, a, a book. He talks about uh, previous plagues and how people reacted, especially the 1918. And um, people were just as anti-science or crazy uh, or uh, as random as they are now, even worse. Yep. And so uh-huh. humanity hasn't changed. Well, yes, the the anti-vax uh, the anti-vaccine movement goes all the way back to right after Jenner figured out how to uh, vaccinate people for against yeah, the yeah. smallpox. The big concern was that you might turn into a cow if you accepted that <laughs> vaccination of yep. cowpox. Yep. Oh, yeah. So that part of history again, amazing. And uh, Dr. Brian will shortly have that out, but I don't have the title of his book. All right, I'll have to look that up. Yeah, Charles S. Bryan. Okay. He's a Wikipedia. Okay. Uh, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. I, I really appreciate all of you coming on and, and talking about your experience, talking about the history of pathology society. Uh, Dr. Santo Nicosia, Dr. Yeah. Julie Lemon, Dr. Daniel Curtis, all of you, thank you very much. Thank you, for your thanks to you for running it very, very well. Thank you. Great big thanks to Dr. Lemon, Dr. Nicosia, and Dr. Curtis. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy, and then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. We had funding from the University of Liverpool to have a, um, a public engagement outreach activity at the Tate where we combine art and science. And so we thought, okay, um, you know, cultured cells can really look very pretty sometimes. It sounds a bit bizarre. Uh, with you know immunofluorescence and things like that, and we were just thinking, oh, well, what what cells could we consider? And then it, we noticed that actually the public engagement activity was going to fall in black awareness, and then we thought, oh, actually, and and it also fell in the month of Survival Cancer Awareness Month, and we thought, okay, well, what brings that all together? And we realised, well, actually, it's the the immortal life of him yet alas. You can hear more from Dr. Sarah Copeland in episode 74. All right, so this was a really fascinating episode, and we could have probably gone on for at least another hour. It was a bit challenging having three guests, but I think it worked out very well, and I really enjoyed hearing their stories and learning some of the backstory about the history of pathology society. They made a lot of great points about you know, the importance of that history, the importance of preserving pathology collections, and the role that pathologists have played in the COVID pandemic, and why we need to really preserve that story. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others and together let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you could find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of the other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.